Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail... Three people are dead and half a dozen injured after an active shooter in Auckland this morning. There are, oh, we can hear firing, we can hear gunshots. Hamilton up. police have responded to five burglaries in the city in the space of three hours this morning. The investigation into the brutal stabbing of a dog walker in Bexley is continuing with police ramping up patrols around the park in Christchurch. Every other day it seems like there's another serious crime. Do our police have the tools to deal with it? Our offenders are more likely to harm our police officers now than they ever have been. We had over 2,000 officers assaulted last year. Over 400, nearly 500 of those actually were physically injured because of those assaults. So some of them are very serious assaults. Last month, the government announced a nationwide rollout of what they're calling co-response teams for call-outs involving mental distress. And in March, police started rolling out its tactical response model after its controversial armed response teams were dumped in 2020. But what do these new models actually achieve? And do they go far enough to fully equip and train our police officers? We are better equipped than we ever have been. I don't think we could ever say that we are 100% there because policing's so unpredictable. We play in the grey. When I started the police a long time ago, admittedly, but you you went out of the station, you had a short wooden baton, you had your handcuffs and your notebook, and that was it. That's Chris Carhill, the president of the New Zealand Police Association. I was a uniform sergeant um, many years ago, and you tend to work by yourself as a uniform sergeant, when they brought in pepper spray. And that was a magnificent step forward as far as safety goes. Uh, Working by yourself, it gave you so much more confidence. Now, obviously, we have tasers as well. Um, But as we've increased the equipment, um, unfortunately, the risks of violence have increased dramatically. I mean, we had over 2,000 officers assaulted last year. Is what we're seeing currently a normal ebb and flow of crime? Or do you believe, in your experience, that this is something different? Yeah, no, it's definitely something different. The the environment's changed dramatically over the years and that change and the level of risk to officers in, has increased dramatically in more recent years. We survey our members every two years and a big detailed survey run by a private um, firm get over 5,000 replies. So it's a very statistically strong survey and 28% of frontline officers said they'd been threatened with a firearm in the last 12 months. And 42% of them had actually been threatened with a weapon other than a firearm. So you're talking some you know, high levels of officers that are being put at risk, and that's the big change. So that's definitely increases, uh, significant increases from what you've seen from previous surveys. Yeah, it continues to climb in the last sort of six years, and it's, it's the willingness of offenders to to have a go and to assault police, their willingness of them to use weapons, and unfortunately increasingly, and the public are witnessing this, I think, very much so as well, the use of firearms and the prevalence of firearms. I mean, officers talk to me now that if they stop a gang car, they take for granted there's likely to be a firearm in that gang car, which is a completely different scenario than when I was an officer on the street. Chris Carhill says officers are also just busier. Police attend an enormous amount of family harm every year and they take up a considerable amount of time. And then mental health. I mean, last year they attended 77,000 calls for people suffering mental distress. 
So that that's a, a really big piece of police work and, and ties them up dramatically. The other thing that's changed is um, the level of violence that they're facing and the people who will use it. Um, you've obviously got a, you know, an 80% increase in gang members in the last five years, but also youth crime and the willingness of youth offenders, some you know, young 12, 13, 14-year-olds who are using extreme violence and are willing to threaten police officers, willing to threaten the public and, and behave generally in a manner that's actually much more serious than youth offending generally was in the past. Yeah, and that's a interesting aspect of it because I imagine that how police officers deal with youth offending and deal with youth might be slightly different to how they deal with adults. Yes, it is. I mean, police right across the spectrum now, we have what we call alternative resolution. So whenever an officer's dealing with an offender in, in some way, the, the first response once was to arrest, send them to court and let it get sorted out there. Now you're looking for alternative resolutions and they can be different for adults and children. Um, the problem we have with the youth is there's limited opportunities to deal with the hardcore youth offenders who aren't responding to all the alternative options that they're being given to try and break the crime cycle. And um, once they decide they don't want to engage in, in anything, it becomes very difficult to deal with them. And, and they're causing a lot of the stuff that you know, the members of the public are most concerned about, the ram raids. Six youths have been arrested after a ram raid on Auckland's North Shore. They're really dangerous driving. A stolen car packed with 13 and 14-year-olds travelled almost 15 kilometres down Auckland's motorway on its rims after hitting police road spikes. The multiple thefts of cars. Police say the kids hook up via social media, never meet, but form virtual groups working together to boost as many cars as possible. And they're repetitive offenders that um, the police find very difficult to deal with because it's not a case of just locking these people up. It's finding some um, ways to break some of the cycles and get them interested in something that actually engages the youth. And where we work in partnership with community groups has the most success. Um, there's some really good iwi programs and that. And if you can get these people into that. But the reality is, and if you talk to youth workers out there, they'll say there's just not enough funding in these areas. Um, and and it's it's very time consuming for police. You know, you talked about the demand. So, trying to put the time and resources into these youths is quite difficult when there isn't the programs there for them. And and that's the real challenge. You know, they're just seeing the same youths returning again and again. You know, even the ones you know that may be put into um, secure facilities, they'll only remain there for a short period of time. But there's very few of those. Um, beds available. So then you have other ones that will simply be bailed and within a couple of hours they're out offending again. We'll come back to Chris Cahill and the struggle police have with youth offending later. But first, given the unique challenges police officers face, what kind of training do they actually get? Currently there are a few weeks of mainly theoretical preparation for officers before they head to a 16-week police college course although the length of that is under review. Superintendent Kelly Ryan, the director of the police's Frontline Safety Improvement Programme, breaks down what's taught. They get trained around communication, uh, get trained around the law, and understanding the basics of the law that is relevant to what they'll need to do when they graduate, how to keep themselves safe, you know, having sort of good self-awareness and understanding their surrounds in different environments, 
um, understanding how to risk assess. Um, so they go through all of that. They learn about the tactical options that they have available to them, sort of ranging from um, dealing with someone who's completely cooperative right through to someone who, uh, I guess, is the other end trying to harm them, if you like, and, and how to make assessment through that. Uh, they're driving, uh, they go through firearms use, and just sort of, I guess, that real understanding of, of what it means to be a police officer in 2023. So there's a lot of work done there on understanding how we police um, that, you know, our values um, and understanding what that means, I guess, for a New Zealand police officer. When you talk about, uh, I guess, the values of police in 2023, does that include stuff like ethics and morals? Absolutely. So we have some key values. Um, one of those values that I guess reflects around ethics and morals is, well, there's a couple in there, but professionalism um, and what that means to to be a professional. Um, and that covers a whole range of things from the way you physically present right through to the way you speak with people mm. um, and obviously all those decisions that you make about reflecting the organisation. Kelly Ryan says the Frontline Safety Improvement Programme was developed after the death of Constable Matthew Hunt. 28-year-old Constable Matthew Hunt was killed during a routine traffic stop on Friday morning. Police aren't looking for anyone else in relation to the fatal shooting, which saw him gunned down on a West Auckland street. When Matt died in June 2020, I think that had a huge impact on all of us. Um, it had a huge impact on the community, but it certainly highlighted the fact that we are... We are in a different policing environment. I think it's becoming more and more complex um, and we needed to do something uh, different for our front line. We needed to make them feel more supported. The programme was initiated uh, following, I think we had a, a hot debrief only two weeks after he had been killed. Mm. Um, and from that, the Frontline Safety Improvement Programme was stood up. That programme is part of the $200 million tactical response model. It was initially trialled in Northland counties Monaco, Hamilton and Central districts, but the government announced the nationwide rollout in March this year. This is the idea of doubling tactical training on frontline staff from three and a half to seven and a half days a year, changes to deployments and the introduction of offender prevention and tactical dog teams. It's a programme that's been developed by our frontline, which I think is probably the really special thing about this programme. It's been developed and designed from the very beginning with them for them. The most important part of the whole system from my perspective and, and the foundation of the model is the enhanced training that we're delivering. It's scenario based so we're getting them to undertake scenarios that in I guess this operational environment are relevant and current um, and a lot of those scenarios have been taken from sort of situations that are close to things that have, have happened. Um, so they feel like the training is of real value to them. And I think that's probably a real key aspect is when we train people, they need to go into that training feeling like it's of real value to mm. actually get the value out of it. Was it not scenario-based before? So the college training, you talked about recruit training before, um, certainly at recruit level there was quite a bit of scenario-based training um, as they came through there, but our police-integrated training, which uh, is, is still still current now, so we're running both pieces of training at the same time at the moment, um, police-integrated training uh, was, was sort of starting to stand up uh, more scenarios in, in its training, but 
if I'm going to be honest, a little bit more compliance driven. So about making sure people are qualified, making sure that they are completing the assessments. So it was sort of quite. So it was like a checkbox kind of exercise. Oh, I wouldn't say checkbox because that probably um, devalues it. But it, it was making sure our people were competent with all the different things they needed to be able to, to be done. And it was only three and a half days, so it was barely enough time to even be able to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had to concentrate on making sure people were, were leaving competent and assessed uh, at that level um, to, from a safety perspective. Police are still rolling out the full programme in different districts, but Kelly Ryan says feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. The offender prevention teams are another highlight. They're made up of armed offender squad trained members who are generally unarmed and are deployed when needed, sometimes as a preventative response. We've got some incredibly cool stories about um, responses where we've actually engaged with whānau and family and and spoken to them about the fact that, you know, we've seen an increasing risk with this person. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to make contact with them. We need to put some wrap around around them and we've actually had families uh, speaking to those people and bringing them to us. And just last week there was... The government's announcement of a multi-agency approach in response to 111 mental distress calls. Instead of just a police officer attending the call out, there's a co-response team including ambulance staff and mental health experts. Police are obviously the, the ones that get the calls um, sort of late shift, night shift more than anybody because uh, we don't necessarily have um, other agencies available. So it was basically trying to give uh, our police members some support from an expertise point of view so that when we are attending these, we're not just responding but actually putting some prevention wrap around to ensure that these people are getting the help that they need from people that truly understand and are qualified to make those decisions. So this is something that was being trialled in different parts of the country for quite some time. Uh, it was disappointing that a number of years ago when Labor first came to power, they actually did away with the model where it was being trialled and when we thought it should have been rolled out further. Um, mm. They've now announced that you know they want to extend that, but they've got a five-year time frame on it, which is just too long. Um, the reality is police go to 77,000 incidents of people in mental distress. Most of those are not criminals. It's a health issue, not a policing issue. Often that will involve taking someone with some significant mental health issues back to it used to be. We would take them back to police stations and they'd be held in cells till a duly authorised officer from health could come and assess them. That model changed some degree. We recognise they weren't criminals. We take them to ED departments now. The problem is there that they have no capability to deal with them. So police are left waiting at that ED department for several hours till an appropriate trained person can be found available. And that's just a complete waste of police resources. What kind of training do police officers get on how to navigate mental health and, and dealing with potentially offenders who are suffering from mental health issues? Yeah, look, it, it's relatively limited. Um, they get about four hours at, at the police college on it. So as you can see, that's not a lot. Then they get some training, but normally that's around recognising the signs of suicide, um, and especially if someone's been brought in, been arrested or brought into custody. So it's actually very limited. The challenge is police deal with so many different areas across the country. I'm not, and when I say areas, I mean um, different varieties of, of demand that they're called to deal with. Trying to spend a lot of time training in one particular area is very difficult. You just simply don't have the time and the resources. 
Um, the reality is that health need to recognise that they need to step up and deal with these people and police to take a step back from it because they're not trained, they're not the right people that the, the people suffering mental distress need. Um, and they'll never, no amount of training will really be sufficient for police officers to be stepping into that role. It's not their role. The co-response model, which has a health expert, mental health expert, maybe say John's Ambulance, and police attend is a much better model. It's been shown that the people get much more the help they need and, and more urgent help. Um, but to be honest, long term, I'd like to see that model doesn't involve police unless there's a risk of you know, a threats of violence or injury to people. When it comes to youth crime and also gangs, Chris Carhill says it's up to other government agencies to step up. The youth stuff, I think, it really comes back to, and it's to gangs to a degree as well, education. We've got to get people re-engaged in the education system in some way, in a level that engages them and gives them an interest in what they, what they want, to, uh, you know, that they can then have a future and be part of society and not have to actually join a gang to feel that they belong. And in a lot of ways, you can see that, you know, police are kind of the ambulance at the end of the cliff. I mean, what you're talking about is young people who have fallen out of education, so they've made bad decisions, so now the police are the ones who have to deal with them. Yeah, police have a a strategy. It's a prevention-first strategy, and so the idea is to try and prevent things happening. And part of that is getting in front of the youth, getting preventing the family. A lot of offenders come from family harm situations, all these sorts of things. But the earliest police aren't resourced to deal with all that, and we need other government departments. We need um, non-for-profits to be to be funded to actually step up and work in that space. Police can't just continue to have to be um, trying to do 24-7 policing and all the prevention stuff as well. The elephant in the room when talking about policing, of course, is guns. At the first announcement of the tactical response model back in 2021, police stressed it wasn't a rejig of the failed armed response teams, which were dropped after backlash against routinely arming officers. Again, when the government said the new model was rolling out across the country in March, we heard that officers were not going to be routinely armed. But do police need guns, given the context of higher crime? Yeah, it's interesting. Given the massive increase in the number of firearms police are finding, the the number of firearms offences that are occurring, the actual use of police firearms has decreased on a percentage basis. And that is to do with training and having better planning when they turn up at an incident, um, mm. a more coordinated approach, things like that. And is firearm usage, you know, it's still considered like a last resort for police? Oh, look, very much so, very much so. Um, no one wants to be the officer that pulls a trigger. It can be life-changing and, and, and is life-changing for officers and, and, and they're far now. There's, there's no winners in that situation. Mm. But back in 2021, a survey found that nearly 80% of frontline officers wanted to be routinely armed. I mean, is that still the case? Yeah, look, it is still high in, in this survey, but um, we're trying to, we're drilling down to see if the areas that have trialled the TRM, whether it's lowering, and there's some evidence that it is. And you know, certainly I think it'll be interesting to look back in two years' time, do the survey again, and just see if the fact the tactical response model that's now been will have been operating for a couple of years by then across the country has changed the perception of safety for frontline officers. What offensive or defensive weapons do police officers currently have access to? They carry... 
a what's called an ass baton. That's a small extendable baton. Not used that often, to be honest, though, and not the not the most useful piece of equipment. But they do have that pepper spray, which is um, very much a useful tool. You know, it, it has an immediate effect on the majority of offenders with no long term um, issues, and so it's it's a good option. They have tasers, and again, you know, a really good enhancement to safety. While they can be controversial, the reality is tasers are normally very safe long-term application and certainly better than um, the use of a firearm if the situation is appropriate. They also have access to firearms when required, and most police vehicles will have firearms in them, and they are a Glock pistol and an M4 uh, semi-automatic rifle. So there is the appropriate equipment there. Um, this challenge for officers, and I totally understand it, is that you know, they say they stop a vehicle, a fender gets out and he's got a firearm, they can't, it's too late to get that out of an arm safe in a vehicle. So that's the, where the most controversial is, but it's getting that balance right between what New Zealanders want and what's safe for frontline staff. And do police officers in New Zealand have body cams? No, they don't. Um, that's um, quite a, a, a controversial thing. Um, we, we're supportive of body cameras. But they're not, from what we can see, the panacea that everyone thinks they are. But there is significant benefits of them, and I think it's only a matter of time. The challenge really isn't around the body cameras. It's around two things. The storage of all the data that's collected from the body cameras. Mm-hmm. So where do you store it? How much does it cost to store? How long do you store it for? And then the real one that is a concern is who then has access to those to that would it be the subject of Official Information Act requests? Would police be bogged down having to supply video footage to the media every Monday morning after there's been an incident? And while you might say, well, that's, you know, that's appropriate given you know, the open society we want, is it really what you want the resources of the police to be doing? And there's obviously a considerable cost at simply implementing them. I personally think it's a matter of time, it's a matter of when, not if, but um, there's a few ducks to get in the row first. What's the general feeling among police officers? Are they happy to have body cameras? or No, I think the majority are for it. They know they're already getting filmed by the public. Um, these these videos have been uploaded and often not in context, often a very short video that doesn't show the full event. So in their view having um, a video that's actually recorded the whole event and at times from different angles, etc., has only got to be in their favour. The best thing around video cameras in theory is it changes the behaviour of offenders and police officers. I'm um, obviously very biased, but I'm confident that it will be much easier to change the few bad behaviours we see from police officers than the significant bad behaviour we see from offenders. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Superintendent Kelly Ryan and Chris Carhill from the Police Association. Matewa. Te